The nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Welcome back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing, and this is Leanne Meyer, and um, I'm really excited about today's show. It's a little bit different uh, than my usual shows, which I usually have a nurse or nurses on uh, to share healthcare from their many and varied points of view, but I recently discovered a book called The Migraine in Room 3 and The Stroke in Room 4 by Paul Shanfield, uh, I should say Dr. Paul Shanfield. Um, He is a neurologist who's practiced over 40 years in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I also worked. And after one conversation with him, I knew I wanted to have him on the show to say what healthcare can be from a, a physician's point of view when humility, compassion, and real connection to patients is in the forefront of all of the care. So in this book, Dr. Shanfield describes his profession predicated on the theme that physicians and nurses don't treat migraines, nor do we treat strokes. We treat people with migraines and individuals who have suffered strokes. This book talks about how healthcare is practiced now, how it could be practiced in the future, and memorializes the many statements, witticisms, and wisdom from his patients, all done in a succinct and disciplined manner while weaving in quotes from Hippocrates and many other great physicians. I really love the book, and I really encourage you to check it out. So welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Shanfield, and I am just delighted to have you here. Could you just tell a little bit about yourself for the audience so they know kind of your background, what you're doing? Thank you, Leanne. I'm very happy to be here. I practiced neurology for 40 years at Neurological Associates of St. Paul and retired a couple years ago and have continued to teach. I teach at Bethesda Family Practice, at United Family Practice, and at the University of Minnesota, medical students and medical residents. Retirement also gave me a chance to put my career on paper. I have uh, collected Uh, over 40 years of quotes and comments and quips, as you mentioned, Leanne, from patients. I actually wrote them down. So I have this enormous folder of of little um, statements and was going to organize them. So little pieces of paper that as they said them or after they said them, you wrote it down and then they got carried home and then what? Uh, Yes, I stuck them in my pocket and then I stuck them in this folder, meaning to go back you know, years later, which I actually had time to do, and I did. Great. I thought I was going to write a book um, of these quotes and make it like a cute little coffee table book. But as I started writing, and as uh, my daughter um, found a writing coach to help me write, it became clear that we should put the quotes in a larger context, in the healthcare system of America and what it's like and what it's hopefully going to be like in the future once again. So we um, actually ended up with a book of three parts, one part which 
we discussed as the healthcare system in America. Secondly, I focus on what makes a good clinician, in my opinion, and then how to teach that to medical students and medical residents. And thirdly, then, uh, what wisdom I learned about uh, life, illness, disability, aging, and death from my patients and from their families. Yeah, and with the book, um, any of this is very applicable to nurses, too, that uh, these are the things that we're trying to learn also, and I think that uh, your your thoughts and points on it, um, again, it's so succinct. It's like there's a paragraph that says exactly what you want to say, and then uh, maybe a quote from Hippocrates and then a, another quote from a patient that the whole thing just comes together and it's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So um, one of the things that you had said in the book is that uh, America, the healthcare in America is in crisis. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the symptoms. I think there aren't very many people who are in healthcare that would disagree that we are in crisis, but everybody disagrees on what that means. Well, the book starts with a William Osler quote, who was a famous physician many years ago, that says, quote, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. Mm -hmm. Unquote. And indeed, that's the thesis of the book, that patient-centered care should be at the center of nursing and physician taking care of individuals in need. The, cha- the title of the book, A Migraine in Room 3, A Stroke in Room 4, one of my friends, a physician who read the book, said, you should actually have the word not. to Voice America Health and Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more, Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Hi, we're back again, and um, once a nurse, always a nurse, uh, exploring the world of nursing, but today I'm talking with a physician who's talking about many of the things he's learned while being a neurologist for 45 years, so his name is Dr. Paul Shanfield, and we were kind of in the middle of talking about the crisis in um, healthcare in the United States, and um, so would you like to talk about what you see as the symptoms of that? I like to 
make simple lists, three or four things. And I would say three things that trigger my uh, opinion that says that American healthcare is in crisis is the rapidly increasing costs despite highly variable medical outcomes. Uh, Second, the corporate business model of medicine, which emphasizes numbers over people, medical problems over people who are suffering from problems. And third, there is obviously widespread dissatisfaction, both on the part of the patients and a part of the physicians. It has been officially announced by the Massachusetts Hospital Association, the Massachusetts Physician Association, and the Harvard School of Public Health. They published a paper in January that announced that physician burnout is an official crisis. So that means that the next time any of you are going to the physician and look at a person talking to you who's a physician, there's a 50% chance or more that that person has one major symptom of professional burnout, which should distress you. Yeah, a lot. (laughs) Um, I just had a somewhat similar experience, but uh, I won't go into that. Um, So... um, what what do you see as the things we need to do to turn that around? We really have to encourage the caregivers, the physicians and the nurses, to take care of individual people. We have to work on our documentation, our EHR, our coding. We have to make more time for a physician and nurse one-to-one with a patient We have to uh, individually care about them. We have to write notes that suggest that we understand the individual person in need and what they're like, not um, where the current focus is. The current focus in medicine now is as quickly as possible, convert a patient's symptoms into a medical problem, a code, a billing code, and then um, present them with the best practice order set, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's fine for simple, straightforward things, but... <laughs> How many people are simple or straightforward? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you cut people off um, <laughs> before they're finished telling their story, you're not likely to... Um, come up with the um, with their correct answer. A Dr. Seuss quote in the book is, when we are sure that the patient is properly pilled, then a few paper forms must be properly filled so that you and your heirs may be properly billed. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's pretty direct and to the point. Um, I think that so many people that are attracted to healthcare uh, has to be both um, physicians and nurses are attracted to it because of the relationships, because of that. I mean, it's so much more than the financial payback of it. Those of us who have really uh, put our, our heart and souls into really helping a patient, um, it really goes back to what you're saying, where um, are we trying to 
make the patient fit into the mold of the healthcare we have? Um, or are we looking at the patient and how do we take what we know about healthcare to make it viable and workable for them? And I think the first one is what we've been doing, and that's what you're saying. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, say a little bit about um, listening to patients. Um, that's bar none. My favorite part of the of the book is these wonderful witticisms and and wisdoms that come from your patients and and talk a little bit about how those happen how they come up well i'll give you a few of the examples and then i'll kind of tell you how they happened a a patient of mine was admitted to the hospital and was routinely asked uh, upon admission uh, who they should contact in case of emergency and he said well anyone within hearing distance would be great for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah um (laughs) You know, you have to care about uh, about what's going on. The um, We have all of these steps. I mean, a patient walked into our office. There's a big sign that says no guns, right? And then your copay is due. And then there's secrecy and security of the medical record. And then you have to provide a... Um, a photo ID of who you are. I had an adorable woman who, uh, not at our office, but she said, I went to my my interest again where I've gone for many years and this new young girl at the desk said, well, I want to see your photo ID. And I told her, I don't have one. She told me she didn't like her driver's license. Um, picture, Picture of her, she didn't like her driver's license. So the young woman goes, well, how do I know who you are? And I said to her, well, go ask the doctor. I've seen him for 18 years. I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah, maybe she needed to see her. I mean. Yeah, interesting. And, it, you know, we see it from our point of view and what it is and why we're doing these things. But patients have absolutely no idea of any of that. And it doesn't make any sense. The one that always gets me, and I do understand it, is how many times they ask me what my name is, what my birth date is, and, uh, you know, some of those things, My uh, what are my allergies? And you just kind of feel like, you know, you've asked me that at least every time you've come into this room with a pill or whatever else, haven't you figured it out yet? And, you know, as a a regular patient, they don't know why that's happening. So tell us uh, another one. Oh, my. So I I actually was in the hospital myself once um, because I blacked out once because it was a medication side effect. And at Five o'clock in the morning, a nursing assistant came in and took my temperature. I got back to sleep at 5.30. Somebody different came in and stood me up to weigh me. Uh, I went back to bed at 6 o'clock. Somebody yet different came in again to uh, draw blood. And at 6.30... Somebody came in to check all of my vital signs once again. And at 7 o'clock, this wonderful nurse came in. She was just coming on who knew who I was and was going to give me a hug. And she probably still doesn't understand what I, what I screamed at. <laughs> <laughs> and they wake me up at 5, 5.30, and 7. And every, it's the same thing over and over again. You know, That's not patient-centered care. That's us doing our 
jobs in little pieces, right? Mm-hmm. It's not patient-centered care in the nursing home when everybody has to eat at 11.45 at mm-hmm. lunch. Uh, that's not patient-centered care. Yep, have their bath on a certain day and uh, go to bed at a certain time and all those things. You just think about, you know, the baby boomers going into a system like that. Oh, my gosh, there's no way that we're going to go along with that. And there are a lot of changes being made to that. Um do you have another one? Have you ever had an EMG, Leanne? I have. I've had it at your office, actually. <laughs> oh, so an, e- an EMG is an electromyogram, which has uh, shocks and needles, although we call them pins and electrical impulses. And after doing an EMG uh, to a woman, she looked at me and said, I know why you had that sign outside the front door, Doc. And I said, well, what, what sign? She said, you know, the sign that says, no concealed guns allowed in this <laughs> clinic. <laughs> I can absolutely relate to that. Uh, yeah, that's oh really. My. So um, I know in the book you talk a lot about listening, and everybody feels like they're listening, but um, listening really is what the patient perceives that you've listened. So what are some of the things that as um, uh, caregivers or, or um people who are supposed to be doing that listening, how can we know what are the things we need to do and then how do we know we've we've actually been listening to them? Well, one of the important things these days is to not let the electronic medical record get in the middle. I had a patient who said um, that she really liked her family doc and she'd been to him for many years, but the last time she was there, the family doc had one eye on the clock and one eye on the EMR, the electronic medical record, and she occasionally looked at me, the patient said. I didn't feel like I was being listened to then. So you have to actually listen to people. It Physicians are told and nurses are told you should let somebody finish, although it's agonizing and you often get interrupted as a patient uh, within 30, 45 seconds, and we try to direct where you're going with your story. Uh, It's really important to let somebody talk uh, and find out what they're like. If they have Parkinson's disease, it's not just what are their tremor like and what are their tone like and what are their strength like, but how does it affect your day Mm -hmm. and how is your day now different than it was two years ago? How, are, how it actually affects you, mm-hmm. how is it different? Um, that's really so very important. And the electronic medical record seems like it takes us away from those ways of looking and hearing the patient. Um, one of the things that um, I'm doing a, <clears throat> a different kind of job, I'm basically Uh, doing intakes for disability, people are applying for disability, and I find it very frustrating that I'm told I have 20 minutes to do this intake, and of course, so many people, that there's no way that's enough to really hear what they need to tell me about why they're applying for disability, and so I I really have struggled with that, and um, uh, haven't quite figured out how to work that out, but I think that that's also what doctors and nurses run into is they're told you have X amount of time for a clinic visit, you have X amount of time for uh, 
you know, a patient's, you've got six patients and you've got to divide your day amongst those six patients. Um, what are your thoughts about how to be able to still do the listening um, within the uh, confines of um, healthcare as we know it? Well, one important thing for a physician is to check his ego at the door (laughs) and to take in information from everyone who has touched that patient. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of information there. Um, I mean, I made friends and chatted with the valet parkers at the hospital, the housekeepers, the nursing assistants, the nurses, the the uh, ward secretaries, um, with everybody because they all have knowledge about my patients on the floor. And you know what? Uh, chatting with the housekeepers, it turned out, and had, I didn't realize this, that if patients were waiting in the ER and were going to get admitted to the floor and they had to, you know, clean the rooms, that Paul Shanfield's rooms would get cleaned before somebody else's rooms would get mm-hmm. cleaned because they knew who I was and I talked to them as people. So they have information. I mean, how many times, I can't count how many times, that nurses gave me information that led to a diagnosis, and I, of course, got credit for a clever diagnosis, and really it was mm-hmm. the nurse telling me that she found a bottle of Valium in the drawer in the hospital. I didn't even know the patient was on Valium, let alone taking it in the hospital. Um, How many times did um, nurses get not listened to when they could help? An ICU nurse is, was, uh, and I had a lot of interchanges with the ICU nurses because they're really special people. And one of them said that he, she was convinced a patient was waking up on a respirator and was conscious. Um, and she tried to tell this physician rounding and he didn't buy it. And he was arrogant and misbelieving and kind of roughly examined the patient. And she said, as he walked out the door, the patient gave him the middle finger. (laughs) (laughs) We communicate however we can, don't we? Yeah, that's amazing to me. Um, I've had the same kind of experience. Uh, When I was in nursing school, we had um, an instructor, professor, that um, on one of the major um, tests that we were taking, the last question was, what's the name of the person who cleans this room? And people were furious because, you know, you aren't really going to count that question. And, you know, this is a very important, you know, test. And how could you ask that question? The point was that, that the, the um, janitor, housekeeper, was outside the door after every single class when we left coming in and then cleaning up after us. And some of the people would talk to him and others, you know, didn't even know he was there. And so um, the professor was saying that's the most important question on this test because if you don't recognize those people that you don't think are immediately involved uh, in what you're doing or what you're trying to accomplish, you are missing a phenomenal amount of, of uh, assistance that you don't even know you need. 
And uh, so it was very interesting, and that stuck in my brain. And I found that I always, you know, you, you think about <clears throat> some of these entry-level positions as being they don't have much power in a large organization. They have a lot of power, and just like what you're saying, if you need to get an OR cleaned, you need to get a room cleaned, you need to whatever it is you're hoping to have happen, if that person has taken a personal dislike to you or to the people you work with, they have the power to be able to speed it up or slow it down, do it first, do it last. All of those different things can happen. And I've had so many times when um, housekeepers that felt comfortable with me would come and tell me something sort of like the nurse had with you um, that no one else had witnessed or perhaps the patient had only shared this with the housekeeper because they maybe spent more time in the room than anybody else. Everybody else was whipping in and out, but while cleaning the room every day for you know a period of time, they actually had struck up uh, a friendship. So I think that's so very important and so often uh, overlooked. If I may make another appeal to nurses that there is a hierarchy in the hospital, right? Um, try to cut through that, please. Try to tell people what you know. Uh, I know it's sometimes difficult, uh, but it's really important to tell uh, the physician in charge what you know about the patient, um, especially if you think it's kind of drifting in the wrong way. Remember, as quickly as possible, we're trying to drain, jam this patient's complaints into a medical problem and to uh, start a protocol. I learned this really early as a third-year medical student at the University of Minnesota, you know, I was the, on a team probably of eight or nine people, and I was the bottom, of course. And I walked by one of the patient rooms who was crying, and I walked in and sat down and said, why are you crying? She said, well, nobody has done anything for me here. And I said, but we diagnosed Graves' disease, which is a hyperactive thyroid, and we've started you on a treatment, which is radioactive iodine, and and I went on and on. Um, and she said, really, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm here because I have diarrhea, and I still have diarrhea. My bowels are still moving, which is a symptom of hyperthyroidism. And you know what? As a student, a third-year student, I could fix that. I could give her something for diarrhea, and the next day on rounds, I was the only one she talked to. She didn't talk to anybody right. else. So you were the hero because you actually heard what she saw as her problem. <laughs> yeah, it's it's truly amazing, and uh, especially if it's something, you know, you've come up with some brilliant thing, and the patient has no idea or you know, unless they can see the symptoms they have and they're dealing with uh, resolved, they, it doesn't look like you're doing much. Um, we are kind of coming up against a break here. So let's take one now and then we will come back in just a couple of minutes. So if you're just joining us now, I'm talking with Dr. Paul Stanfield, who is a neurologist from St. Paul. Uh, he recently wrote a book called A Patient uh, a migraine in room three uh, and a stroke in room four. And the whole point of the book is that that's not how we look at, at uh, our patients. So come on back with us in a couple of minutes. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm. 
your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact senior executive producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Leanne Voice America at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Hi, this is Leanne Meyer, and this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I'm here with Dr. Paul Shanfield, who is a neurologist uh, in St. Paul for the last 45 years or so, and he just wrote a book called A uh, Migraine in Room 3 and a Stroke in Room 4, and we've been talking quite a bit about what could be... um, uh, what could be the future in in healthcare, and just really appreciating the patients, I think, is is a, a big part of it. Knowing them personally and and uh, being able to connect. And one of the ways that your book uh, really does that or shows that is through humor with the patient. I think it can relieve so much stress in so many ways, and also the patients can be very humorous. So, um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? How you bring humor into your your care? 
Sure. Uh, uh, Hippocrates' quote is, quote, the physician must have at his or her command a certain ready wit as dourness is repulsive both to the healthy and to the sick. Yeah, how, how true that is. <laughs> All the way back to the beginning of healthcare where, well, and really, and that's from Hippocrates. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the time period he lived, uh, A.D., sometime early in there, oh, but I'm not sure either. Thousands of years ago, yeah. But it just goes to show that all as far back as we have written history of, they got that. And so many people still don't. They go into healthcare and they come in with this horrible face and don't even realize maybe that, uh, what that says to the patient right there. Um, anything else? Any of the other ways that you've so used humor? I ended up um, coining a phrase for how I wanted... Um, my practice to go in the hospital and in the clinics, and that was we wanted to convey a relaxed compulsiveness. Uh, we wanted to be able to smile. We wanted to be able to be, uh, tell a story. We wanted to allow the patient to tell a story. But we wanted to make sure that uh, the patients understood that even though we had lightheartedness at times, that we were compulsively going to get to their actual problem and to their uh, to a result that was specifically focused on them, not printing out a order set for a health problem that had nothing to do with them necessarily or was a general order set, but actually focused on them as a person. I actually had an experience with that in your office uh, about a month or two ago. Um, I had come in very nervous about um, a potential problem, which in my heart I didn't believe was true, but I had been told I had to go and get this checked out and probably have a series of tests and things like that. And so they had planted this fear in me. And when I came in, I was immediately working with the receptionist. She was like the the mini armed paper hanger kind of thing um, where she was just so busy and so many things were being directed to her. And yet um, both the patient ahead of me and myself, when I said something that was very personal or trying to joke or something like that, she immediately responded back like she got it. And so even that little bit Hearing that happen with the patient in front of me and then also hearing it with myself just relaxed me. It took her two seconds, you know, to do that. But even in the midst of all her busyness, she could have said, well, just wait, or, you know, that isn't uh, something I need to know or whatever. But she went right along with it and it worked out just great. Yes, yeah, so, so that's we, an experience on that. We try to encourage people to smile and tell us things. Like a, um, I knocked on the office door in room eight to come in and the my patient in the room said it's your office doc you can come in if you want you don't have to knock (laughs) and as i walked out a different patient said well have a nice day dr shanfield unless you have other plans (laughs) yeah people are so wonderful Um, One of the things, too, that you talked about that I really appreciated, um, because as a patient, I really appreciate it, and as a nurse, I appreciate it, is when doctors or or, uh, any kind of healthcare professional is honest with a patient, that they... um, 
are delivering, I think you talked about uh, delivering the message. Now I'm going to forget where that was, if you remember exactly, but how you deliver that message and how much the patient can take at a, in a, yes. immediately. You have to read the patient and decide how much information they can learn and take and and at that moment. There's a wonderful book called When Breath Becomes Air, um, which actually I read and was tearful, and you will also if you read it. Um, one of the quotes from uh, Dr. Kalenithi uh, is, quote, a turgeon of tragedy was best allocated in the spoonful as few patients demand the whole at once. Most need time to digest it. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly true. So physicians, when they're facing bad news, giving bad news to people, many of them uh, avoid it altogether. They're mum. Or another group of physicians dump, literally go crash and then leave. Yeah. Uh, I had a, I had a uh, patient with very bad uh, brain cancer and he went to a uh, oncologist who said to him, I don't think, well, excuse me, he said to him, I don't think chemotherapy will work and I don't think radiation therapy will work for you because it's so bad, but we'll start both of them tomorrow and walked out of the office. Apparently, the physician walked out of the office not realizing he was fired at that moment. (laughs) And this patient was a PhD psychologist, as was his wife. So I I know this was a correct um, consequence. So so you just don't dump and leave. You just, a lot of physicians don't like to get bad news ever. Um, One of the keys is knowing how to prepare for a discussion. There's a four-part description of how this should happen in the book. And what we try to do is uh, get an understanding of the patient's um, comprehension of what their disease is and what their health is like, and then find out what their specific goals are, especially if their health worsens, what their fears are, and then what trade-offs are they willing to do um, as they think about things? Because treatments that may work or may not probably come with complications and risks of pain. And how will those things, I mean, you have to let people think about how they wish to handle those types of treatments. Um, we often have sad uh, situations in the hospitals when somebody's on a respirator and facing death and the families are paralyzed, they don't know what to do. Now, please, um, it's very important for people to address um, these issues with their elderly and their loved ones um, and write uh, directives and living wills. But please remember that living wills that are currently written aren't often very good. <laughs> and when you say, well, my lawyer helped me write this, and it's very good. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> that explains a lot. <clears throat> <clears throat> it, the living use, wills usually say things like, if there is no hope, then I don't want to be on a respirator. If there's 
if I'm going to be a vegetable, then I don't want any more care. But almost all the time, it's not black and white like that. It's like, well, it's reasonable to assume you're probably, your father's probably going to never recover. Um, and if your healthcare directive doesn't say, if I don't have a reasonable chance of recovering, I don't want to go through that, that will help your daughter enormously to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very helpful. And it's helpful to continually to have this discussion as people age. Right. It We often saw the the son from California flying in. <laughs> Leanne's nodding her head here for all of you in the audience. And uh, who hadn't seen uh, his father for a year and said, well, no, we have to keep, we have to keep pushing. And, and the daughter who's been there mm-hmm. every day realizes that the father is enjoying living less and less and less and less. And it's really, mm-hmm. he probably does not want to continue. The other part of that is the, the, uh, often children that are coming to their parent and uh, realizing that they kept always thinking that they would resolve all those big problems that they had never resolved since, you know, childhood or teenagehood or whatever. And so it's like, you can't die. I need to get this worked out. And that's not the time. It's no longer about about you. It's, you know, you're going to have to deal with that later. But um, it's about really supporting that parent in this final, um, you know, uh, uh, journey. Um, <clears throat> one thing I think maybe doesn't come up very much, but I'm curious if it does. How many patients say, no, I don't want any care? Um, you know, maybe even somebody that has been active in the community or whatever, and they get a pretty, you know, difficult diagnosis that's going to be long-term chemo, probably lots of radiation, their life will change, and everybody around them will have to be focused on this sick time as opposed to that final journey of being with each other, enjoying one another as much as is humanly possible. Um, I had a friend that did that, and she told everyone, her family and everybody else, you're not allowed to ever ask me how I am. Because in answering that question, I have to go into a place that I, I don't want to uh, surround myself with that. And so she, um, she was a ballroom dancer. She did that. She went and visited her, her children in all the states they were in. She um, played the cello. She did that as long as she was able to. And it just uh, she was given like four to six months to live, even if she did all the chemo, etc. She ended up living almost a year and was able to do all of those things that she wanted to do for the most part. Um, it, it really struck me because I hadn't really thought about that. Usually you think, oh, yeah, you've got to fight. You've got to do this. How often does that come up? Uh, not often enough that we actually describe chemotherapy illness. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to suffer with this, this, and this, and this, and it may prolong your life a year, but your life is going to be like this. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's very, very... Um, kind of gets down to quality versus quantity. Often it does. Often it does. And you... But you have to make that clear to people, and mm-hmm. most people don't. Again, you know, we're 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 
jumping into a protocol with lists of what to do that may or may not relate to the person in front of you and you're just doing the best practices mm-hmm. without saying, well, does this fit for this exact person? Mm-hmm. Um, that takes the exceptional caregiver, the exceptional nurse, the exceptional physician to talk to somebody to find out what their goals of life really are. Are they enjoying their years and want to see their granddaughter married and see the new grandchild born yes those kinds of things or is it is it just too much Mm -hmm. um is each day not worth the struggle often when they're laying in the hospital room i'll come to a family and say well let's let's assume that your mother can be totally awake and lucid, no pain pills, no tranquilizer, nothing for no sedation for five minutes. And you explain to her everything that's happened in the last two weeks and where we're at, what would she tell you to do now? Because you're not supposed to make this choice for you. You're supposed Mm -hmm. to make the choice. It's called substituted judgment. Actually, you're supposed to use her judgment on what to do here. Um, And the young people who are left behind would like to keep mom forever, right? And uh, you have to ask them, does mom want to live forever or not? And maybe Mm -hmm. she does, maybe she doesn't. I mean, there are adorable people in my office that gave me quotes like that, like one man who was realizing how old he was said to me, yesterday I looked in the mirror, Dr. Shanfield, and how did we ever run World War II looking like that? I mean, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. One guy said, I think I skipped the golden years and went right to bronze and <laughs> stainless steel or whatever it was. You yeah. know, I mean, it, everyone has a different yeah. take on it, and you have to go where that person is. Well, an is. awful lot of it, too, is about um, your perception throughout life. So that goes back to personality. It goes back to experience and wisdom and you know, learning experiences along the way. So those are all the things that come to the into play in those last minutes or days or months or whatever. And uh, it still is about, uh, you know, you may perceive that that person is suffering and they should give up. But if in their mind, they see each day as a success or, um, uh, you know, they just have so much hope that, this is going to go in a better way or that I'm going to have one more conversation with somebody that I might not have had before, that they're willing to, to do um, this difficult route, whether it's chemo or radiation or whatever the, the cure is, surgery or whatever, um, to be able to accept that also is a difficult thing to do. Um, we're um, coming closer to the end of uh, this particular show it always seems to happen and um, I guess I'm curious you know what are your thoughts Uh, we've got probably um, five minutes yet or so but um, what are your thoughts about what you'd like nurses uh, particularly to know um, that you think is most important well as as I thought through my career, I think the major 
theses treat individual people in need. I think that's why all the nurses went into this, all the physicians went into this, and the system is in our way right now. We've got to get the system out of our way and get back to taking care of people. Leanne said at the beginning of the hour that I scribbled little quotes, like one of the quotes was, Doc, I think there are three stages in life. There is youth, middle-aged, and gee, you look good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I scribble, I would write those down, and I put them in a folder. Well, a few years ago, after we instituted the new electronic medical record and we were getting audited by the insurance companies and and the government was doing meaningful review and this, that, and the other thing, it occurred to me that for six months I hadn't put a single sheet of paper in my pocket with a single patient quote. Not a single one. And I sat down and said, what was that all about? And I realized that I had forfeited my chance to talk to people as individuals and was following all of the protocols and documentation and coding. There are 68,000 outpatient codes, Leanne. Wow. And there are another 68,000 hospital and surgical codes. Okay, so just to get the exact right code <laughs> on a patient may take half the, half the visit if yeah. you want to do it right. Yeah. I didn't, by the way, but don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so, so the key wa- is, and will always be, focusing on the individual person. So we have to get the message out to healthcare reformers to try and get us back to the more meaningful one-on-one. I mean, maybe you'll still have your 25 minutes with the physician, but if mm-hmm. your physician is typing the whole time and looking through a coding book, that's not really the same thing. So you really have to get meaningful. Maybe what we've lost is the art of healing and the the uh, the relational part of our business. And I really think that is what makes it. For, for those of us who really love health care, <clears throat> that is the thing that is worth all of the struggle. <clears throat> Excuse me. The difficulties that we have to go through and, and the challenges of, of dealing with people maybe not at their, their best. Um, and maybe why people are starting to that 50% that is burning out and the people who are committing suicide. Maybe that's the reason is we have to get back to a personal connection that makes all the difference. And that's what I really love about your book is that it is all on that focus. How do we within the parameters of what we have to deal with, how can we make it about the patient and the family? How can we do that um, maybe more quickly, uh, maybe more, um, uh, I don't know quite the word, get better at it, I guess. Is there any kind of training for doctors? I know for nurses, not necessarily on how to say things because people who are much more in their head and more, scientific kind of people don't have a clue or maybe the words that they think to say are so inappropriate it just doesn't work is there anything like that for people that want want that well that is one of 
things I am trying to teach, um, it's not commonly out there. I actually, uh, this is the second year at the uh, American Academy of Neurology annual meeting in Philadelphia that I will um, run a course on clinical mindfulness in a, as a clinician. So how to use mindfulness um, to practice medicine. So this is exactly the things we talk about, how to uh, understand where the patient's at, how to understand where you're at. Yes. Um, uh, there's a little section in the book where I, I talk about a typical hour from like 4.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon on call when you're in the hospital uh, and the office is just shut down and you're seeing a patient, a new patient in the hospital room, and you're paged by the pharmacy for an outpatient pharmacist. And then while you're out, uh, the ER calls and then the nurse grabs you and says, well, there's a patient in two rooms down that didn't get his bill for this. And then they, and I, I've always wondered, how many interruptions can I put up with and get back to my primary task? Right, and not lose the whole focus of it. Um, we are uh, at the end or very near the end of, of our show here. I'm wondering if you could come back again. Um, uh, Perhaps uh, another time, maybe uh, April or something like that, that we can have you come back and talk a little bit more about some of the things we didn't get to. One thing I wanted to share um, uh, is how other people see you, because you are a very humble person. And something that really struck me was on the back of your book, and it said, in 2018, Dr. Shanfield was awarded the Community Teacher of the Year by the United Family Medicine Residents, and in quotes, in the spirit of the great teachers of medicine who have transmitted a heritage of proficiency, scholarship, and caring to us and future generations, unquote. That, to me, says so much about who you are as a physician, but also who you are as a teacher and as a human being. And I wish that somehow through, you know, a book like this or or rubbing shoulders with people like you, that that can be more apparent in our healthcare um, than it has been in the past. And then I just wanted to end with... um, that I have a friend that I don't know if she's listening today, but she had thought she might, and her name is um, Patty Schulte, who is experiencing uh, just a phenomenal fight with um, uh, cancer and has had, I think this is at least her fourth round of cancer and over her lifetime. Um, But she is so incredibly amazing that she just inspires me every single day, uh, despite having so much fluid sometimes in her lungs that she can barely breathe. But she always has something funny, something positive. Um, It's just incredible. And when I take her to her appointments, every single person that passes her says, hi, Patty. And something about, you know, how much they admire her or what she's given to them. Um, Just their voice indicates that she is a very special and important person to them. And I just want to say, Patty, you're a special and important person to me. So this is the end of Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, uh, Exploring the World of Nursing. And this is Leanne Meyer with uh, Dr. Paul Shanfield today. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. 
you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.